we can just have a quick chit chat about you know your because you you're so interesting i could do an episode on you no oh that's flattering thank you yeah because you've you've many musicians i get on there they're great at doing the music but it's really good to have someone like yourself who's has a right you also yeah your podcast kind of calls for a very uh, person (laughs) with like a real set of skills i ask a lot i expect a lot i have high standards but i also assume that some people's untrained uh that's part of the charm like someone who doesn't interview people that could it could be bad or it could be kind of remarkably unrepeatable. Yeah. I win either way. I'm, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a glass half full. <laughs> yeah. And it's also for, for fans of your band to hear you come into this setting is really interesting for them. So yeah, people get a lot from it. Cool. Because they, I guess people have heard you. You've been on a few podcasts. I heard you on a few and. Oh yeah. I'm running my mouth all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. I'll just, I'm going to, have to make the coffee. And if, uh, if you could. Yeah, I'll just start a monologue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but you're used to being interviewed, but you also, you're a good interviewer. So you, you write, you're a true journalist. Yes. This, this has come in handy because many, also many of the guests, they, it's their first time they're used to being interviewed, right. but it's a, it's a different to be on the other side of the questions. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And to like be a good listener and to not make everything about you and to not interrupt. It's a real, there's some real tough parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have actually, am I right? You've already interviewed our guest. No, that's tomorrow. No, in the past. Oh, you know what? No, it didn't happen. I wanted to. But uh, uh, okay. I, I was running out of time with the book and we just didn't get to it. And, um, uh, which was, it, it could have, it wasn't essential, but it would have been nice, but it just didn't happen. So I'm glad I get to. Yeah. Yeah. So is this for the book about Van Morrison's album? Yeah. And what that, that book is about, um, a lot more than that. It's well, basically it's a year in Boston. With Van Morrison and that album kind of as the main characters, but it really tells the story of the counterculture and the underground at the time for mm-hmm. one year in Boston. And it tells about like the secret psychedelic history of Boston where the, you know, the first LSD hit in America was in Boston. Um, so, uh, and Doblin's never talked directly about that. He always starts with Leary, Tim Leary mm-hmm. and, um, whose legacy he kind of wants to obliterate, which I also find super interesting. Um, but I'm curious to talk to Rick about um, how much he knows about Boston's um, kind of pre-Leary psychedelic history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're really, you're really uh, fighting for Boston. Are you going to run for mayor one day? <laughs> <laughs> well, while I wrote and released the book, the mayor was named Mayor Walsh. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a proclamation given the day the book was published. And I remember at the event, just holding it up and saying, thanks, Uncle Marty, you know, because probably everyone assumed it was it was uh, in the bag, like <laughs> some kind of um, unsavory business. But uh, no, I, I don't think I could ever be a politician, but um, I do, I've always lived here and I, I do love it. And so, yeah, I do have a little bit of a streak of um, fighting for our uniqueness. I always said, 
the book couldn't make the case that Boston was any cooler than people thought it was, but it, I can make the case it's weirder than people think it, it is or was. Yeah. 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 But you know who, who should be made to be politicians is people who don't want to be politicians. It should be one of those trick questions. I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't, don't want to, but then they'll just learn, you know? Yeah. It's like, no, I don't. It's the briar patch. <laughs> I guess it should be, um, you know, it should be like, I don't know. I don't know. How do you do it? Nominated by your peers, but now I'm thinking it through and then the peers will actually be a paid pack. But <laughs> yeah. How do you do it? Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's not one of the questions we'll be asking, but, uh, but you, so you are, have you always lived in Boston yet for your whole, you're born and bred, yeah? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, raised in Dedham, Mass, which is the first suburb south of Boston. It okay. really touches Boston, very close. Um, so for people who want that distinction, I always give it. And they knew. The people who grew up in South Ely, you fucking did, you grew up in Dedham. Yeah, I've and seen. I've seen a lot of rough movies set in Boston. Yes. And that's another thing. It's like, that's like this one public perception yeah. of, of the Southie tough guy. Yeah. A very violent place. Yeah. And I don't relate to that at all. And it's not anywhere near the whole of things and maybe never was to the extent that it's been presented. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and will will goodwill hunting is kind of like the good, sweet middle spot of that because I I like that because it's about like a, a smart kid <laughs> who likes to who likes to read who is also very violent who was also very violent because I did know people like that like I I know people who were quite brilliant and would perhaps hide it or downplay it and mm -hmm. you know to start up a, a brawl at a bar on occasion. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Argue, I think, arguing over Nietzsche versus uh, what's that? Arguing about Nietzsche, some finer points of Nietzsche. No, not that. No, I've never seen the exact argument that you see in Goodwill Hunting, <laughs> but but um, no, I mean, yeah, there is a certain. I guess there's, it's a weird thing. There's a certain anti-intellectualism in Boston, even though that's like we're University City. And I think the only thing everyone agrees on is Dunkin' Donuts. And so we all meet there and get coffee. Now, where where are you located, Jack? I'm in Italy. Yeah, I'm English, as you can tell from my, my fantastic accent. Where uh, in Italy? Uh, underneath Napoli, about an hour and a half south, right in the south. And have you always lived there? No, no. My uh, my girlfriend's Italian, so she she brought me over here about 10 years ago to, to sample the local delights, and I've never left. And where did you grow up? Uh, in England, near, near Cambridge, the original. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And what time is it there? What time? It's about two o'clock. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So midday. Mm-hmm. But um, what was I going to ask you? Um, so, and you, you're most famous as being in Hallelujah, the Hills. So that's your... The, the... Well, certainly the longest thing I've done. Um <laughs> Yeah, that band started in late 2005, and um, we've released a lot of albums. I think we're up to seven or eight, mm -hmm. and I've always stuck together, and we survived the pandemic as a band. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be glib about that, but I mean, <laughs> but, I, but I just mean, you know. You mean survived uh, physically or survived as a band? Well, the we, of course, we all survived physically, and that's 
the best thing to be thankful for. What I was, what I'm saying is some institutions, some clubs, some bands, you know, two years of shutdown and it either, you know, kind of made them hang it up or yeah, whatever. And, uh, we found ways to stay busy. Mm. We learned to remotely record and, um, but yeah, I'm really grateful. It still exists. It's a, it's a beautiful thing in my life. But you are a Boston institution though. You're one of the uh, cult underground bands there. So, so they say, yeah. <laughs> oh, was that the articles you wrote? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm just slipping this one into pitchfork now. I just had it. <laughs> oh, if only it was that easy. <laughs> no, but I really love, love your sound. It's, uh, oh, thanks. And, and lyrically as well. So, because we're, we're doing this in this in, end of this interview, we also need you to do some extra work and that's to, to write a song inspired by the conversation. So exactly. Yeah. And well, uh, it's, it, that's an odd exercise and I've never done that. And so I'm really interested to try. Yeah. So do you think, do you have a particular angle as well? Because I've, I've been searching, researching Rick myself, but you, you know, him a lot more in depth than I do. It's a, it's a fascinating area. So I had also had on, um, um, Carl, um, what his second name? I had him on last week. That'll, his name will come to me. Sure. Carl Hart. Yeah. Who's another, who's also now on the maps. Oh, okay. Directors, I think. All right. So how was that? That was great. Yeah. Really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm not an advocate for psychedelics myself. I've never, I've never done it in mushrooms one time. Uh -huh. Are you, are you, a, um, without maybe advocates a strong word, but I think that there is, um, so much potential in healing and helping and making peaceful people with these, uh, substances. And, and I can also clearly see how, um, their prohibition was, uh, very unfortunate, but kind of not a surprise with the way that Tim Leary and others just were like, everyone take it like candy, you know, <laughs> um, I just see it. I, 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 first of all, I just can't believe that something exists that we figured out can, we can put in us and then it does what it does. Mm -hmm. That's astounding to me. And then also, um, just, it seems to be, I don't know. It just seemed, it seemed the problems of the world are so massive and so you don't even know where to start. And, but if this could be figured out how to safely help people, um, I really feel, I really feel there's potential for positive change inherent in it, but I also understand it's dangerous, hmm. but it's so many things that have helped grow and evolve society are also dangerous, you know, fire, uh, and cook <laughs> your food or, or, or melt your bones and, uh, you know, a a hammer, you can you smash someone's head in or build a, a house. So, um, there's a PR angle too, that has to be navigated. And I'm interested in talking to Rick about that. I think he's really good at that. And I'd love to know more about, you know, cause people, I think a lot of people want to have him on as a, um, nutty anecdote or, oh, is he going to say something crazy? Mm. And he's so good at 
at not bullshitting, but also getting the message out and being very realistic about it. Mm -hmm. Well, it was the same with Carl Hart. He really, he really takes apart people because he's, he's done research into the, into drugs. So he yeah. has, and he knows it's, you can't ask him a question. He hasn't been asked, asked about drugs. So, right. Yeah. So you really <laughs> wouldn't want to go into an argument with him about it. Right. Yeah. But yeah. did you have a transformative experience yourself? Yes, I've had a few. Um, and um, I think, you know, I, I forget when the headlines first came out that it, that psilocybin, which is the active psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms, mm -hmm. uh, Johns Hopkins headline that it seemed to help with depression. And I had already experienced that when I read that headline. Uh -huh. uh, and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm not a one-off. <laughs> it's a, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a possible potential thing here. And now they have these, this data that perhaps microdosing, mm -hmm. uh, and it seems to, um, potentially sidestep some of the negative byproducts of like, uh, SSRIs or antidepressants. Wow. Not that I, I think those stay around. I'm not like, you gotta get rid of those. I, I see how helpful those are too. So not a hardlined extremist, but, um, personally affected by it for sure. And art artistically too. Um, I hate, I hate when people are like, man, how high were you when you wrote blank blank or whatever, whether it's me or anybody who makes anything. And, um, the truth is, uh, I think yeah, pretty bad at being creative when you're in that state, oh, really? I, I think so. Uh, whether it's marijuana or mushrooms or whatever, but it's about what you take back. Right. Uh, you, right. you come back changed or open to new things. And, um, there's also this great saying in psychedelic culture. I forget who says it. Maybe it's Ram, Ramdas, Richard Alpert, but it's like, once you, it, the, the idea is once you get the message, hang up the phone. Mm -hmm. And then the, the thing about that is, uh, you know, the goal is not to gobble mushrooms every day until you're nine, you know, it's about recognizing when they've done, they've helped you and done their work. And, and I'll talk to Rick about this, but you know, one of the reasons perhaps pharmaceutical companies haven't raced towards these things is because you don't need to take them forever. And that's how they make money. Mm. Um, and this conspiratorial <laughs> as I'll get. Yeah, we could go down the V road here, but we're not. <laughs> That's actually what I said to Carl Hart because, you know, he has all these proofs that, uh, you know, uh, all these drugs that most drugs are, are naturally derived, aren't they? I mean, even heroin and, and they come from plants, you know, and the ones we're talking about. So, right. you know, there's some, even he doesn't advocate some of these ones that are made in a, in a lab and. Okay, know, sure. You know, yeah. So, but. But, you know, the thing I said is I can trust, you can't trust the corporations because, you know, if you look at cigarettes, tobacco is a naturally grown, but the shit they put into those cigarettes right, to make them more addictive. More, so imagine if they did, if they were allowed to drug, do these drugs and look at the opioid crisis as well, you know, once these pharmaceutical companies do to get their dirty yeah. little hands on it, 
yeah. it's better be, it's better in being underground, you know, safer. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want people to go to prison for it. I mean, it's I believe well, it's decriminalization. Yeah, yeah it's decriminalization, and then you can figure out how to grow yeah. them yourself or yeah, yeah, someone who does. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, you want yeah, like you said, you want decriminalization, but not you don't want um, magic shrooms brought to you by Marlboro. And you buy it yeah. a package at the gas store. Yeah, the, yeah, and so the, the kiddies can reach them as well. On that. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I lived in Amsterdam for 10 years, and um, there's you know, magic mushrooms and marijuana on every street. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, how are you going in America now? You're you're going through the this legalization. We sure are, yeah. I mean, marijuana is now legal here in Massachusetts. Um and in many places, but not all of them. And it, um, and it needs to. I mean, I think everyone who's in jail for anything related to marijuana should be released immediately. It's insane. It's disgusting. It's insane. Yeah. And um, what is it? Uh, I believe Colorado and maybe all of Washington or part of Washington State is in some way legalized psychedelics. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So it's oh, happening. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll ask Rick about that as well. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Again, the corporations run the prison system in America too. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've done a lot of episodes about corporations. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're not good. They're not good. <laughs> <laughs> as far as, as far as being moral, ethical, uh, hmm. um, uh, bastions of freedom, they are pretty terrible at that, but they'll, hmm. They're good at delivering the same thing over and over again. Many of the things that we need and love and or like, but, um, beyond that, there's a big price to pay. Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully we can put the world's rights with Rick later and see how he's, he's doing it, doing the good work, isn't he? I mean, he's going into prisons actually. And I think yeah. he is. I mean, yeah. It's very, yeah. Uh, we'll ask him about that for sure. Okay. Great. Well, is, is there anything else people need to know about you? What were you working on at the moment? Is there another book coming on? Well, so hopefully someday, uh, there's been some twists and turns in the road to the second book, but that's okay. Um, it'll, it'll be there when I, when I get to it. What's it's, the uh, subject or is that an exclusive that I can't talk about it yet, but well, because the first idea kind of had to be walked away from. So I don't want to talk about it because I could do it someday. And now I'm, I'm hammering out what the sec, what it could be. But meanwhile, I'm doing a lot of writing and a lot that will come out this year, both music and, and nonfiction and a little bit of fiction. So I, I just stay busy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell. <laughs> That's great. I love people, love people like you because a lot of people, I reach out to other musicians and they say, you know, oh, I've got, I can't do it. I'm too busy. I've got an album coming out this year. Uh -huh. and, I mean, if you want a job done, give it to a busy person. I've always well, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. One of the interesting things, like growing up, like, you know, trying to figure out how I could be a musician, because it was something I was interested in, but kind of like a lot of the role models are like what they call slackers, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, these fucking rock gods, they just lay around and then shit out a brilliant riff and then it, uh, they're on the radio. And what I immediately found out was either that's a total lie and they're 
complete hustlers behind the scenes <laughs> or someone who is a complete hustler found them mm. and was driving the cart. Um, and so I've always, um, I've always been like very motivated and, you know, don't wait for inspiration, make it come to you and also learn every part of how you do this. So, you know, I'll still, I'll still walk around and put up posters even after all these years. Yeah. Cause, um, it's uh, all part of the whole, the same thing, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, anyone who's ever done a tour knows it's not, it's not just drinking beer and playing the show. It's, it's really. It can be a lot of that. I will, I will say it can be a lot of that. <laughs> Maybe I picked a bad example. <laughs> no, actually, you know, there are, there are different ways to approach tour. I mean, whether you're a little struggling band playing little dive bars or, you know, a huge act, you can, I feel like you can approach a tour as a, as a ongoing party mm -hmm. or as a, um, as a job or maybe somewhere in between and probably, uh, figuring out the healthy balance is the only way to do it long-term. So many people burn out from touring, um, and they lose their writing chops and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, we used to tour a lot. We mostly I'm interested in writing new songs and recording them these days, but yeah. I think we all go through that arc. Now I'm firmly lodged in podcast land, so I'm not going, I'm never going to the road again at any time. COVID, yeah. came, COVID came along at a really great time. I got, for me, COVID was the best thing that's ever happened to me. The lockdown, not COVID, really, sorry. Truly. Let me rephrase yeah, No, that. no, no. I know what you mean. You, and you have to always put that footnote in because it, mm. you don't yeah. want to sound, you don't want to be insensitive. No, um, no, it was a, but I know what you mean. Yeah. I'm in the countryside here and I was, you know, I had a started pod songs and it really made me, it was a life changing experience. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say something, a similar answer. Cause we had a lot, we had just put out an album called I'm you and a lot of touring was being set up and was in progress. We were actually pulled off the road. Like, oh, oh yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Like th we played till the day, like we were declared a health emergency essentially. Wow. And, but I was, <laughs> I was, I was so busy. I was burning. I like found a third end to burn the candle at that time. And when I was, <laughs> when I was grounded by the pandemic, um, I quickly came to see like, oh, thank, actually thankful that this put me in my house. I think I needed rest and I was like headed for something bad. So, um, same thing. And, and I got to all these things on my to-do list that were just going to stay there for years otherwise. So a terrible thing, but also, um, some silver linings too. Yeah. But are you, so you've done, you've done, you moved from a you've music and you're doing the writing. Are you, cause you did start studying filmmaking and you've, uh, you've won award for best video director as well for your own, for videos. And are you going to go into filmmaking or screenplays or is that a lot? You know what? I will, um, my parents would sure love that, uh, having paid for college for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. What I, well, you know, what I found out was right after I got out of college was that it was so much easier to gather the resources, to make a record or write a thing. The, the, the amount it took to get a film together, even, you know, on a student film level was so, I was like, this is, 
this is for rich people. <laughs> I was like, you need, I, this, this isn't going to be my best stuff if I'm constantly worrying if, you know, X, Y, or Z. That's a stressful so, job. No, that is a real. Yeah. And so I found, I, I do it. I do videos, which I just do for real cheap. And I would love to, um, you know, during one of the pandemic projects I did was I wrote um, something in a screenplay form. So oh, okay. I got back to it and that felt good. I don't know if anything will come of it, but um, yeah. Yeah, because now there's all these film festivals for, for iPhone movies, no? I know, incredible, right? Like uh, yeah. just the, um, yeah, the idea of what it took for me to make a three minute movie in the late nineties. Yeah. And that anyone can do it with the thing in their pocket in such a short time is mind blowing to me. I really think uh, you and I, uh, most people listening to this really live at this amazing sped up intersection. Like I always tell this story to explain how fast things are moving. First tour ever musically, uh, we had an Atlas to get from city to city. Second tour, printed out map quests, directions from city to city that you planned out at home, you know? Yeah. Third tour. Uh, uh, one of those Garmin units you put on the windshield and it was very expensive and you protected it like, oh, hide the Garmin, like, you know, and then the fourth tour, everyone has a magic computer in their pocket and can give you directions at any time. Like that's, that's a lot for a brain to handle. I think. That is. Wow. Because I wanted to also ask you because Hallelujah, the Hills, when I was researching it, I found a film. Oh yeah. Is that how you, you named the band after the cult film? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was shown that film at BU when I was studying film, uh, a class called films of the sixties. And I was just, uh, really delighted by that movie. I'd never seen anything like it, like it. I love that it was made in new England, shot up in Vermont. And so we named it after the movie. Now, when I was writing the book. Uh, the the movie is made by two Lithuanian brothers, Jonas and Adolphus Mikas. And Jonas Mikas is, you know, this legendary underground film filmmaker. Sorry, my cat's coughing. Sorry, right. why? Um, legendary filmmaker involved with Warhol. He's in the Velvet Underground documentary quite a bit. Anyways, he intersected with the Boston story of my book. He knew the cult leader, Mel Lyman, who's a big figure in the book. And so I had to go, and, and when Jonas was still alive, I had to go interview him for this topic. And I was like, gosh, darn, what do I do here? Cause I need to keep journalistic integrity, but at a certain point, I got to tell this guy, my band's named after a movie he made. <laughs> so it, I, I just waited till we were kind of formally done with the interview. And then I said, all right, now I have to tell you something. And I pulled out one of our CDs or something and he lit up so happy and, um, and he, we chated all these stories and he was like, yeah, you'll, um, let's screen the movie and you guys will play. And I was like, I can't believe this. This is so magical. But he, unfortunately he was very old. He, he died before we could do that. But just the fact that I met him and told him that we had, um, got so much positive mileage out of this name that he was associated with. It was, it was pretty meaningful to me. Oh, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, I think we we better get wait wait for this to come on. All right. There's the preamble. That Let's was the preamble. Uh, everyone suit up. 
<laughs> Let's get into the heavy field. <laughs> well, Rick, um, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and we almost crossed paths a few years ago when I was writing a book about Boston in 1968. And of course, that intersects with Leary and Ramdas, uh, uh, which um, you speak a lot about. But I'm curious how much you know about Boston's pre-Leary psychedelic history. Pre-Leary, not much. No, I do know that there was research in 1949 with LSD. I think that was here in Boston. Yeah. I mean, it's the first, as far as I can tell, it's the first LSD dose in America. Yeah. Yeah. I think so as well. Um, is that so... When you say, um, I love that you use the phrase, uh, you would, you want to bury the ghost of Tim Leary. Yeah. Is it, um, is it especially meaningful for you to do this work here in sort of the same place where it started? Um, it is. Yeah. The, oh, because look, actually I'm going to try to, um, show you a photograph that you may have seen sure. before. Um, here, it'll take me just a bit of time to get it. Um, here, I get this photograph, but I, I think when I moved from studying to be, um, a, a psychedelic psychotherapist to where then I switched to, uh, studying public policy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very, there are a lot of similarities between individual psychotherapy and then changing, uh, the mind of a culture into, yeah. a, um, healthy perspective relating to drugs and drug policy. So there's a lot of sort of symbolic behaviors that have to do with, um, how culture changes its mind. And so starting research in, at Harvard, where Leary was, is really important part of that. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm just going to share this picture. Um, great. All right. So. This is just a picture of Tim and I, this is 1990. Yeah. And so this was um, a benefit for maps. It was pretty amazing. It was in Oakland, California at the Claremont hotel. Um, Ram Dass was there, Laura Huxley, Ralph Metzner, Leary, the three of them were together. Harry, mm -hmm. Dennis McKenna, Andy Weil, Mark Kleiman from McKinney. It was, it was, a, it was a great, great event. Daniel Ellsberg was there of all people, but. Tim had just finished his speech and it was time for questions. So I went to him and I said, you know, what advice can you give us for trying to work with the government to make MDMA into a medicine? You've got all this experience, you know, what is your advice for us who are uh, those of us trying to work through the FDA and work through the government? And his first comment was, fuck the government. I said, <laughs> I am so far past asking for permission for anything. Yeah, um, I'm glad you're doing it. And that's when he um, raised my hand like that. Wow. So incredible picture. Yeah. Do you, how, how tangible is the Leary hangover, not only in the field, but in uh, Massachusetts or Harvard in general? Do you feel like we're still dealing with the direct reverberations of of that work? We are. So for example, you know, we're doing phase three research for MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD. And I right now in Belmont am about, um, one mile or so from McLean hospital. 
which is affiliated with Harvard Medical School. That's where we actually started psychedelic research at Harvard back around 2006. And it was an MDMA study for cancer patients with anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, but that didn't proceed very far. Um, and there hasn't been anything more at McLean Hospital. So when I was looking to set up phase three sites in Boston, I went to um, McLean Hospital. They said no. I went to MGA. This is now 2017 and 18. Uh, MGH said no. Um, uh, Cambridge Hospital said no. There was no place at Harvard where they would work on an FDA-approved phase three study. Right. And so we ended up working with Bessel van der Kolk in a private practice site. So he's our principal investigator of the um, Boston site. You know, he wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. So there was, I would say, the, the ghost of Timothy Leary um, sort of haunting people. But that has since changed in those last few years. So now at MGH, there's the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics. There's, there would be, I think, more willingness at McLean or elsewhere if we wanted to do research inside of uh, facilities. There's MGH is combined with Home Base, which is the Boston Red Sox. They have a program for veterans with PTSD. They want to add MDMA into that. And I've connected them up with um, one of the main funders, the Stephen and Alexander Cohen Foundation in New York. They fund vets, but they also own the New York Mets. So we're talking about a New York Mets, Boston, Red Sox, Harvard combination wow. to do MDMA research in veterans. Wow. So we'd cross that symbolic point. The, the other thing to say is that LSD was very important to start research with LSD because it was also connected with Leary, but also the quintessential bad psychedelic, the one that people are most frightened of. Right. So as part of the psychedelic renaissance, it was really essential to bring back um, LSD research, which we managed to do. One of the proudest things in uh, MAMS history is that we managed to bring back LSD research in Switzerland uh, months before Albert Hoffman and his wife Anita died. Well, they could see the renewal of psychedelic yeah. research um, with their own eyes. Just the very, very beginnings of it, but they did see it. Right. Because he certainly felt conflicted about what he invented. Yeah. Well, well, I wouldn't say that. He, he well, he, he wrote LSD, my problem child. Problem child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he was glad he invented it. He thought it an incredible potential, but he thought the way it had been handled in okay. society and yeah, you know, as a symbol of cultural value and you know, and all of that wasn't so great. Excuse yeah. me, just one second. Sure. There's some uh, one. There's a, a paper near a mic somewhere. I think somebody. Oh, I don't. Oh, maybe, maybe. I don't okay. think just somebody's it. moving something. If you could some, yeah. some sound. So. Okay. Rick, was there a turning point, um, where that change started to happen or when you saw, saw it start to happen for me, I remember, and maybe you can tell me what year this was the Johns Hopkins study about psilocybin and depression. It seemed to me that was like the first headline I saw that sort of started to reverse the story. Um, well, I would say for me, it really started back in, um, uh, around 2003, um, when science, there was, there was an article in science. Well, let me start by saying that, um, science in 2021, which is what science and nature are considered the top scientific journals of the world and science 
published a list of at the end of every year, what the top 10, um, scientific breakthroughs of the world are. And in 2021, there's, there's always one winner and nine runner ups that are not ranked. And so one of the runner ups as the top scientific breakthroughs of the world in 2021 was our MDMA study published in nature medicine, our phase three, our first phase three study. All right. So why that was so satisfying is first off to be ranked as one of the top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the world was amazing. But also 20 years before science had published this paper that said that, uh, MDMA could hurt dopamine and could cause Parkinson's. Whoa. And it was accompanied by the editor of science had an editorial saying that taking MDMA is like playing Russian roulette with your brain. You know, it, it's yeah. this terribly brain damaging thing. Okay. So we, that, that study never made sense didn't seem right. It was in primates. Anyway, we criticized it with the letters to the editor. Eventually, um, it turned out that they spent a year trying to replicate the results, which they couldn't do. And then they autopsied one of the primates that had died from their administration, which we knew was a sign because we'd done other stuff with MDMA with primates where they didn't die. And they discovered that they had mistakenly given methamphetamine instead of MDMA to the primates. I see. And it was just a massive scandal. They should have known they had to withdraw that paper. So, so that for me was, was around the same time as Peter Jennings, um, had a documentary called ecstasy rising. And that was the first documentary that ever came out that had positive stories about MDMA from ecstasy users. Right. And the, it was so positive that members of Congress and the white house office of uh, drug control policy contacted the president of ABC and tried to block them from showing this documentary. All right. So, so that's really the high watermark and, and the, the retreat of this fear based, uh, propaganda about MDMA being, you know, terribly brain damaging and it should never be researched. All right. So then that, that's sort of like the change towards the negative, the negative was kind of, uh, discredited. So right. then I think this, uh, study that you're talking about with psilocybin from Hopkins, that's starting to be this other side of where the positive is starting to be promoted. Yeah. Okay. I think that, that one was, was a big turning point. Then it came several of our papers about our, our MDMA research, our phase two studies, and that started really changing things. And then the big, big change was, um, in uh, November 29th, 2016, when the FDA said that we could move into phase three studies. Right. So now we have the first psychedelic ever psychedelic assisted therapy moving into phase three. So I'd say those are the, the key points. And then also it was 2008 that we um, were able to start the LSD research. That was a really big turning point as well. You know, again, now LSD research, also research at Harvard. Um, and that's where the, with our MDMA project. So, so that's where the stigma started really disappearing or mitigating right. in the new narrative. And now we've got like 400 for-profit psychedelic companies. Right. That's been another aspect of this transition. And does anything about, uh, for-profit psychedelic companies worry you? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I think we need nonprofit public benefits, psychedelic companies to keep the for-profits in check. Yeah. So, you know, the, the traditional playbook in pharma is one of competition 
and overbroad patents to try to block other people. It's trying to create monopolies that may or may not have anything to do with original inventions, but have, you know, use of the patent system to try to right. claim certain areas of authority and then try to use, um, money that for profits are more have easier access to capital than nonprofits. Right. And so, yeah, you can use money for lawyers to try to drain other companies. So also I think ketamine s ketamine by johnson and johnson jansen the way that was approved is another cautionary tale from mm -hmm. for profits where if your mission is to maximize profits not to maximize patient outcomes providing ketamine s ketamine the way they did without psychotherapy is a good way to do that because the results fade right. if there's not integration you need more ketamine s ketamine right and they also went for s ketamine which is an isomer of ketamine instead of the racemic because, um, they could patent it. Right. But it's not better than the, the gen racemic, which is now generic, which is only a few dollars as compared to four or $500 for, you know, for as ketamine. So right. the way it was done was suboptimal an, an inferior drug, but because they could patent it and without therapy, because they don't understand therapy. And also because that way you need to go for more ketamine. Well, right. yeah, that, that's a, I've that, always thought yeah, fantastic for profit boots. I've always wondered if they'd be interested in all companies would be interested in all because unlike a lot of other medications, there is often very often with psychedelics an endpoint where you don't need to take them for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? That's our goal. That is our goal, but that is not the goal of classic right. no pharma. Yeah. So if they're not checked, that's what they will pursue. Like, you know, psilocybin a day keeps the doctor away. Well, yeah. And not only that, but the money for therapists to provide therapy with the drug doesn't go to the drug company. Right. It goes to the therapist. So it's like right. reading to them for their bottom line. That seems like a terrible recipe. <laughs> so I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad there's people up front thinking about how that can be. Uh, yeah. And, and not only that, but I just heard some good news actually that, uh, Janssen, the company that made it into medicine is actually paying for a study combining esketamine with cognitive behavioral theory. So okay. all right. they're, they're years late and yeah. a lot of the therapy clinics or the ketamine clinics are going to be evolving into psychedelic clinics where yep. therapy is offered, but the providers can decide, is it ketamine? Is it MDMA? Is right. it psilocybin? You know, so there'll be customized, personalized treatment packages for each individual patient that may not be, uh, so right now we have just ketamine clinics because it's the only thing that's legal, but, but those ones that are done by anesthesiologists that are not connected to uh, therapy will wither and fade away. And mm -hmm. the, the ketamine clinics that do provide therapy and eventually have trained therapists that can provide MDMA and psilocybin, those are the ones that are really going to proliferate the most. Gotcha. Um, do you have any opinion on, uh, you know, it's probably, you could call it a fad at this point. Do, uh, is microdosing something you're interested in or, or have an opinion on at all? Well, um, I think it can be helpful for a lot of different things. But we're generally not interested because, um, well, first off, we want to get people free of drugs. We, microdosing is a way for creativity, for 
uh, energy, you know, for inspiration. <laughs> it can be helpful in low doses for people with depression or something like that. Right. Uh, but it'd be better, I think, macrodosing to get to the core of the problem to work through it so they don't feel the need to microdose for medical. So I'm less thrilled about microdosing for medical yeah. than I am for beyond medical, personal growth, you know, um, creativity, yeah. things like that. The, the other thing to say is that microdosing, nobody microdoses MDMA, really. There, there are a few people that, that have microdosed, not microdosed, but 10 or 15 milligrams of MDMA for pain mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis, but not for the therapeutic use. And so the other part though, is that not, it's not a microdose, but what we thought about was to do our phase three studies initially would be therapy with low dose MDMA versus therapy with full dose MDMA. And what we found is that the therapy with low dose MDMA, people did get uh, better from, you know, where they had been before, but the low dose MDMA generally made people uncomfortable. It certainly mm -hmm. activated them without reducing the fear enough. And so if you had people that got therapy without MDMA, yeah, they better than people that got therapy with low dose MDMA. So, you know, again, that's not quite microdosing, but, but I do think right. that there's a lot of benefits for microdosing. It's just NAPS is not researching that. And is any there is anyone associating that with their therapy pairing it with therapy officially? Um, well, let's see. Not that I'm aware of. No, okay. no, but, but that is the kind of idea that's the, yeah. the, 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 the closest, it's not microdosing again, but I'll say we are, we did get a $12.9 million grant from the state of Michigan for a mm -hmm. marijuana PTSD study in veterans. Okay. So, Cannabis for PTSD is about controlling symptoms. It doesn't get to the core of the problem. It needs to be used daily. If you stop using it, your problems come back. Right. But there's a fair number of people that would be fine, um, you know, not doing the harder work in a sense of working with MDMA or psilocybin or ayahuasca, I think to go to the depth of the problem. Yep. And so there will be a fair amount of uh, interest, I think, if this study that we're going to do demonstrate that it can be helpful to some extent in reducing symptoms. So we'll know that in about three years from now. Gotcha. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I write in the book I wrote, I wrote a lot about Marsh Chapel, both yes. with uh, certain things that happened there historically, but also of course the Marsh Chapel miracle, which for people listening, you don't know was, um, an early Harvard sponsored uh, experiment with uh, psilocybin where some people got placebo, some got an actual dose and people in that setting of a church, many experienced religious experiences is how they would qualify. Yeah. Now, am I correct that you did follow-up interviews with some of those? Yeah. Well, I did a 25 year follow-up and I, um, managed to identify 19 out of the 20 people. And I would interview those that are willing to be interviewed in person all over the country. Yeah, uh, that was during the 1980s when I was at New College getting my undergraduate degree, and you had to do a senior thesis, and I wanted to do a senior thesis on psychedelics, and it was at a time where psychedelic research was completely shut down. But I realized that I could do this follow-up study. It was done in 1962 by <laughs> Timothy Leary. Walter Hankey was the um, it was his PhD, 
he was a minister and a doctor and getting a PhD. He loved credentials. You know, he, he later worked with Stan Groff and others at uh, Johns Hopkins at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center or the Psychedelic yeah. Research Center. Um, but he died in a scuba diving accident in 1971. That's right. And, yeah. And he would have done this follow-up, I'm convinced, but because he died and because of all the stigma psychedelics, nobody had done it. So I needed to do a psychedelic uh, thesis, or I wanted to do, and I realized that asking people to reflect on what happened before is going to be something I could get permission for because I'm not giving a psychedelic. So yes, I did do that. And that really confirmed for me my theory of change as to why it's important to be working with psychedelics and bringing psychedelic research back because many of those people, so basically nine out of the 20 had a um, sort of full or partial mystical experience and eight out of those nine had the psilocybin. Right. And so, um, but, but what many of those people that had the psilocybin said is that this unit of mystical experience, the sense of being connected beyond your ego with all of life, with all of humanity, that that had political implications in that they proceeded to do more work in social justice things when in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the women's rights, the environmental movement, anti-militarism. So that I think that there was this um, key to the sixties in a way in this good Friday experiment at Marsh chapel Mm -hmm. as what I, um, felt was that a lot of the counterculture, you could say, was motivated by psychedelic experiences to not fight in Vietnam, to, to see through a lot of things. I mean, you had the, um, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out kind right. of thing. But I think the, um, the lessons of the sixties is that there was this political inspirational aspect to egos beyond ego kind of states, mystical unit of states, but also that there was a bit of a cover-up in the Good Friday experiment, which was, you know, the advocates, particularly Leary to get back to him and others, were um, exaggerating the benefits and minimizing the risks. Uh-huh. In contrast to the government. How did you figure that out, Rick? Well, w- what it turned out is that one of the people in the Good Friday experiment was, uh, from the other people told me this story, that um, he had gotten so inspired by Reverend Howard Thurman, who was the uh, incredible African-American minister who actually had studied with Gandhi and was Martin Luther King's mentor. That's right. That helped bring nonviolence into the uh, U.S. civil rights movement. Right. Howard Thurman, and was very interested in the the political implications of the mystical experience. Um, His sermon was incredibly... Um, motivating and dynamic. And at one point he said, uh, you need to tell people there's a man on a cross, this kind of evangelical right. part of it. And one of the people said, yeah, I, I do need to do that. I need to do that now. And he ran outside and he was under the influence of psilocybin. He's running down Commonwealth Avenue in front of Mars Chapel is, is a very heavily trafficked road. Right. And um, Houston Smith and uh, Walter and, um, and, uh, um, you know, ran after him. Right. Um, and along with Walter Pankey and they captured him and he didn't want to come in. Right. Died anymore. And so they gave him Thorazine. They gave him a shot of Thorazine. Yeah. And then they tranquilized her, sort of major antipsychotic, and they brought him inside, but they never mentioned that. Really? So, not at all. That was a completely buried. Didn't he rip up, 
a mailman's letter or something. He gra- grabbed something from a mailman and ripped it up. Yeah, he was he was he was definitely in need of of care right. <laughs> at that point. <laughs> you know, to not kill himself in traffic or anything like that. So, so they just, yeah. they just tossed that data out. Well, they they just never mentioned it at all, and you would not read about it. And then. Um, over time, it, it sort of became that everybody that had the psilocybin had the mystical experience, which is not the case either. Two out of the 10 didn't. Mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, th- there was that kind of exaggeration of the benefits, minimizing the risks. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really justified in their minds, I think, by the government doing the opposite, you know, and then not only ex- uh, suppress, not only denying the benefits, but then suppressing research into the benefits for multiple decades, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Right. Do you, if, if, do you have any kind of um, what-if scenario? Have you ever played out or thought about, let's say it was handled better, they did a better job at this, and um, experiments never, never were banned and continued. Do you, where do you think we'd be right now? Well, I, I do often think about that. And so... Um, you know, if there had not been this backlash in the 1970s, all right, there was so much psychedelic research, you know, so much interest in it that we would be, um, my theory is that we would be a much more mentally healthy country and world Mm -hmm. than otherwise. So this is not, goes back that far, but let's just say 1985 when MDMA was made into a matter, criminalized. You know, the medical use of MDMA was criminalized in 85. When we just think of the number of suicides just among veterans that have occurred since then and how it seems that the therapy that we're doing with MDMA so can help prevent suicides. Um, The first person at the Bronx VA who received um, MDMA, the first veteran, um, had a very positive outcome. And felt that it could have a role in reducing veteran suicides. Yeah. Um, so, and many of the vets in our studies have said that. So I think that, um, you know, we, we would have psychedelics incorporated into our mental health right now. You know, we would have less addiction. Yeah. Ibogaine is incredible. Ibogaine was, um, it's not a drug of abuse, but it's got unique properties to help people with opiate addictions to go through withdrawal and to bring material up to the surface about issues that they're not working on that drive them for running, running away. So in a year where we had over a hundred thousand people die of overdoses from uh, opiates, often mixed impure with fentanyl, um, we've got a drug that still is not available. It's illegal in the United States, but it's legal in Canada, legal in Mexico, legal in England, um, or I should say better, it's not criminalized in those countries. Um, I think we would have vastly um, better mental health reduction of, um, you know, overdose deaths, but also what about the whole link to the war on drugs? You know, the suppression of the benefits. So what we see with medical marijuana is that that changed people's attitudes about whether marijuana should be legal or not. Right. All right. So, so let's talk about the harms of the drug war and mass incarceration and the racist nature of the drug war. If we had incorporated psychedelics into our uh, science and medicine in the seventies, I think the, the, 
rhetoric of the drug war that was used by Nixon, used by Reagan, you know, to whip up fear, to go after crack, you know, super predators, crack babies, you know, all this stuff that was um, not based on science. Right. You know, the, the damage of the drug war and the, the number of, of murders, let's just say, of the cartels. You know, we don't see that with alcohol now. We don't see that with marijuana in the United States. So the vast amount of violence, crime, God, I, I think it would have been transformative to our culture. W would we be in such denial, so many people, about climate change? Right. You know, because people have a hard time dealing with things that are difficult. And you dissociate. That's a classic strategy for uh, when you're traumatized. You dissociate. It's not really happening. You're not really there. So a lot of people are dissociating or not dealing with the realities of the challenges that we're facing on a global basis, both about uh, vaccinations, about the pandemic, about climate change, about militarism, about authoritarianism. I think psychedelics, if they had been incorporated into our society instead of suppressed, that we would be, um, you know, well along to what I've been calling a spiritualized humanity. Yeah, that that's really the end goal for maps. Mass mental health equals spiritualized humanity equals where we know our place in the universe, but also we know that we have more in common with other people than separate. So I think it's one of the tragedies of the 20th century was the criminalization of psychedelics research and psychedelics. And when you say uh, um, a spiritualized society, um, can you speak a little more about that? Because I think some people hear that and think. Oh, well, that's a utopian far out vision. It, it is a utopian far out vision. Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, lean into yeah. it. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Well, with weapons of mass destruction that we have with yeah. the fact that, um, mutual assured destruction is what's kept us, you know, from blowing up the world with nuclear weapons, but that implies it requires people that are at least to some degree, not suicidal. So what do we got about the leadership of Russia, the leadership of North Korea? They don't care about human life. Right. They, at some point, they might not even care about their own lives. So we we are on a precipice. Albert Einstein said the splitting of the atom has changed everything except our mode of thinking, and hence we drift towards unparalleled catastrophe. What shall be required if mankind is to survive is a whole new manner of thinking. I think that's this mystical sense of how we're all in this together and that that's the new manner of thinking. That's where psychedelics and, and other techniques can move us in that direction. So the utopian future mm -hmm. may be the only future if, if you know, we, we may destroy ourselves if we don't reach this kind of spiritualized humanity. So this is for you, this is beyond helping individual people with deep pain. It's about. It's about saving humanity. Yeah. So, so 50 years ago, 1972, when I was 18, that's when I decided to devote myself to psychedelics. Yeah. And that was for political reasons. It was more than, it, you know, it wasn't so much therapy. It was, again, this idea that if, you know, being um, influenced by the Holocaust, you know, influenced by how people can dehumanize others, what is the antidote to genocide? What is the, it's to see that people are brothers and sisters, you know, that, that how do you do that to your own family? So that, that the political implications of the mystical experience 
are what made me 50 years ago focus on psychedelics to bring that back. I also thought that, you know, they were tremendously helpful in clinical conditions, but also in personal growth and religion, you know, the roots of Western society, the, the Greeks, the Eleusinian mysteries had a psychedelic component. So we're, we're not talking about mainstreaming psychedelics or re or integrating psychedelics into Western culture. We're talking about reintegrating after the power structure, after the church wiped it out so that they could be an intermediary between people and spirituality for domination and control. So I think that this um, larger mission, which therefore means that MAPS doesn't just do drug development and to make MDMA into a medicine for clinical conditions, we also work on drug policy reform because we need to get these experiences into widespread um, application not just for people that have a diagnosable disorder, but the medicalization and the science through the FDA is the key lever to change people's attitudes after, you know, billions of dollars of misinformation in, you know, the D.A.R.E. program and the Partnership for a Drug-Free America, you know, the, the overhype of uh, government-funded scientists. So how do we break through all that? It's medicalization. Now, I'm a child of the D.A.R.E. program. Uh, I, you know, I, I went through it in elementary school. Um, and I remember even as a young person who had never had any involvement with any substances when they, whenever they would bring up the subject of why people take drugs, peer pressure was the only answer they had. And that just struck me as so false. And it continues to strike me as so unusual that we never talk about why people take any drugs. Well, you know, I, I'd end up um, having a fair amount of conversations with police, you know, where we have to get, um, you know, schedule one drug licenses for, for all the researchers. And they have no idea a lot of times why people take drugs, because all they have heard about is, oh, you're going to go crazy or you're going to do brain damage or th there's nothing positive in it. It's all about running away. And so I, I find myself trying to explain to police and others why people would do these things uh, and, and they're interested to know because their education or their misinformation and miseducation has left them clueless about why people would do this right now beyond um your work and you know the political activism and the regulation activism like for instance the 60s had not only leary and that movement but also cultural artistic heroes pushing the same thing john lennon Paul McCartney, I took LSD, it opened up my creativity. Is there anyone today who is a good, in your opinion, a good spokesperson for, you know, the goal of maps per se? Uh, yeah. 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 Well, I'll, I'll tell you somebody who's a bad spokesperson, uh, first off, which is Will Smith, you know, cause he has been using ayahuasca and was, has oh. talked positively about his use of psychedelics. Oh man. And we're two days, listeners were two days after the slap. Yeah. Just to, you yeah. I mean, and, and letting his anger get the better of him and thinking about how that's an appropriate thing to do in front of a billion, whatever, how many people are watching or, you know, who knows how many, but lots. Right. It was, uh, yeah. So that's a bad example. Yeah. But um, a good example is Michael Paula. Okay. At, and I think through his book, How to Change Your Mind, and there's a Netflix documentary coming up about that in July. 
Uh-huh. But but I think that the main thing why Michael Palmer is such a good um, contrast to Timothy Leary, who we started talking about, right. is that Timothy Leary talked about um, tune in, turn on, drop out. The thing about Michael Pollan is that he was a well-regarded um, author about food, about health. Um, then he started, uh, you know, experimenting with psychedelics. But the thing was, before, um, he was Michael Pollan before he started experimenting with psychedelics, and then he was Michael Pollan afterwards. Mm-hmm. He didn't get divorced. He didn't uh, go to India and wear beads and start meditating in a cave. You know, he he. Right. He demonstrated that you can have these experiences and right. stay within the cultural frame and just be more open, more educated, you know, different kind of attitudes, but that it doesn't require this dropping out, this counterculture. So I think Michael Pollan, uh, you know, we like to call him the pollinator and that he has, you know, very, very much right. um, changed a lot of people's minds and has done a lot of good. So I think, you know, Roland Griffiths is a, is a good spokesperson. He's a sober kind of a guy, you know, but he, Roland Griffiths, who did the research at Hopkins, he was the leader okay. research and Bill Richards who's in his eighties an early, um, LSD researcher who he worked with, um, Walter Panke. He wrote the first paper with Walter some of the first papers on the good Friday experiment. And he's still, he's the longest lasting, um, psychedelics therapist right because stan groff was in his 90s or 90 but stan does not do psychedelic therapy now but bill richards still does right so he there there are spokespeople that i think are excellent right Paulin's a great example because he's a writer but can you think of any i'm thinking of artists musicians painters staying staying is a good one he does yeah i didn't know that incredible yeah. yeah paul simon Oh, wow. And they both done incredible work with, um, ayahuasca and other things. And they've written about it and spoken about it, made songs about it. And so, yeah, there are a lot of artists like Casey Musgraves, you know, she's incredible. She talks about LSD inspiring a bunch of her songs. Uh, wow. I, this, I didn't, I, yeah, there's, there's all, all that. that up. Yeah. Th- there's a movie that people want to see, have a good trip. Yeah. It's about celebrities and entertainment who talk openly about their use of psychedelics. So mm-hmm. yeah, there, there's a lot of artists who, who are open about this. And, and doing a better job than recklessly saying, everyone take this and yeah. get hooked. Yeah, yeah. And, and sort of, the, what, I think the most important thing they're doing that's so important is they're not saying that the power is in the drug. Again, it's in the, the relationship that you set up with it, the context, how you do it. Yep. That, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about doing it in ceremonies or doing it in a therapy settings or, or being careful when you're doing it. It's not just pop a pill and all of a sudden you're more creative. Right. Um, we just have a few minutes, Rick. Um, and so I'll, I want to ask you just one or two more questions. I'm curious about, you know, there's rigid, um, restrictions about who can take your experiments. Okay. And, and kind of the idea behind that i feel like is this can't work for everybody or you know what i mean like at a certain point um what if this is widely accepted as a miracle um you know substance and process but some people just would for pre-existing mental conditions will they feel left out prohibited from taking it you know where do you uh, see 
Yeah. So first off, I think also one of the problems of the sixties was this mythology of one dose miracle cure, you're enlightened, you're cured of this or that. So, um, we don't say that it's a miracle, but I think the challenge, because it's the, it's, it's therapy that the psychedelics make more effective and it's intensive psychotherapy. So it's very much, um, initially more expensive than just giving somebody a daily pill to take. Right. So in order to justify the expense, we mostly have to prove that it's durable right. in a substantial number of people. But the other thing that we need to do is to figure out how to decide ahead of time, if we can, who are going to be responders and who are going to be non-responders. Right. But we do not now have that information. We cannot predict ahead of time who's going to respond, who's not going to respond. Right. And in our initial phase three study, 88% of the people were either 67% um, no longer had PTSD at the two month follow-up. The other 21% had clinically significant reduction of PTSD symptoms, even though they still had PTSD. Mm -hmm. And if they would have had more time or a fourth session, um, they might, um, yeah, well, so I think yeah. this question about um, who's going to respond, who's not going to respond is the big issue. Um, right. Borderline personality, uh, people with difficult attachments, they tend to need more sessions. Right. But they're not necessarily non-responders. They just need more sessions. So it's it. So, yeah. And so a collaboration with the substance and human uh, humans yeah. is, the, is, the, is the recipe, really. Yeah. Now, I don't want to work alone and be as powerful. Right, right. It's, uh, if, if you look at the MAPS logo, um, have you seen the version that Alex Gray has made of the MAPS logo? I'm not sure I have. I know Alex oh. Gray. Okay, let me try to um, share my screen there. Just It'll just take me just a second. Sure. Um, um, because it's, it's really quite um, beautiful what, what he's done um, with this MAPS logo. And for listeners who don't know, Alex Gray is a um, famous, uh, would you call him a psychedelic art, visual artist? Yeah, 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 very, very much so. And the, the, the reason that I'm going to show you this is that um, it's about, uh, it's a psychedelic image. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so let me just share the um, screen here. Um, let's see here. Okay, so this is um, Alex Gray's interpretation of the MAPS logo. Yeah. But the thing about it is that the hands are first. It's humans helping humans. The psychedelic um, eyes, swirly things in the background is in the background. So what mm -hmm. we're emphasizing here is that the key part of this is the human relationship that the person and the therapist, the therapeutic alliance, that's the key factor for whether people can get better or not. The psychedelic is intentionally in the background, not in the foreground. Love it. So that's that idea. Um, well, it's a beautiful image and it's a beautiful mission. And um, I'm thankful for your time. And I'm, I'm going to write a song about this conversation we just had. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. Um, how long is your process? When do you think you'll... Well, Jack, Jack and I need to talk about that, but... Um... Uh, we'll figure it out. And I can't wait to share it with you. 
okay. And then we'll share it through our social media and everybody, you know, right. you know, we'll, we'll let hundreds of thousands of people know about it. <laughs> Rick, I appreciate you, all the work you do and, and for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Right. It's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed your questions. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Hey, bye, Jack. Jack, do you want me to stay on? Oh yeah, yeah. Let's have a. That was great. Wow, you really. Uh... Oh man, I'm so I'm so embarrassed. I was late, um, but uh, I pulled it together. I, I hope. Yeah. You... Wow, you've really raised the bar in the standard of interviews. I have to say. What really? Yeah, you did a great job. You're so relaxed, so natural. Yes. Yeah, okay. Tell you've okay. done many interviews before. Okay, good, good, good. I like that guy a lot, and uh, he delivered. It was, he was a great guy. Yeah, the questions just seemed to flow from you. Like you didn't even have them written down. Or... No, I, no, I was looking. I, I had some written down here. You just couldn't oh. tell. Okay. <laughs> but but then I abandoned a lot of them because things he said made me think of other things. And so yeah, no. that felt natural. Yeah, you just very, really good, really flowed, pretty. I mean, he raised the bar because I'm I'm into getting so many musicians on, and they're they're so used to being interviewed. But it's it's a skill to do the to do the interviewing. So I think I have to, yeah. Do you, um, uh, do you remember Saturday Night Live skit where Chris Farley interviews uh, Paul McCartney? No, I haven't seen that one. It's called the Chris Farley show. I'll send you the clip. It's a, it's a joke about being a terrible interviewer. And he's like, <laughs> like when you wrote, like, let it be like, that was awesome. <laughs> and it's not a question and paul just has to be like yeah yeah it was pretty awesome it's very funny uh um, it's really paul mccartney and obviously this guy yeah 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 i'll send it to you um but uh, uh rick's question the um the timeline for what's next mm -hmm, yeah what do i how much time do i have what do we do what do you want well, it depends are we going to use mdma are we going to use psilocybin or are we going to um what are we going to take to uh to write this song? <laughs> um uh, yeah that's a good question we'll have to decide do we want a fast song or should we just go slow should we just do uh downers uppers i mean right <laughs> um i think it's uh each of our choices yeah <laughs> no but i mean um i forget what to refresh me what the literal next steps are like do i write um alone off camera like we're in bring something to yeah what let's uh because now we're on you know we're literally up after this so we go away and write something and because this is the free part of the process though no, we can we're not we're not you know we come up with the best song possible so to come up with things back and forth and we can always have a you know another zoom call do some collaboration as well if we need if necessary yeah and then you know you go then we can you know we i have a group of musicians here in Italy, we can, re you can record something to a click, we can work on it, or you can work on it as well. Um, okay. Could it be, could my band do a finished version or is that not the idea? Oh, that would be great. I mean, it's less work for us to be honest. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I think, I think I would prefer that. Um, just cause it's going to be fun to take this through every part of the experience. I'm completely happy with that. Yeah. So, so why don't I, um, set myself a goal of demoing something mm -hmm. that I can let you hear within the next two to three weeks. How's that? Sound? Yeah, that's good. I think the sooner the better, because the longer you leave it, it does tend to. That's true. Yeah. I may, I might jot some down or, or start it today. Yeah. And, and, um, 
and then we'll we'll proceed. Okay, yeah. Super. Thank you for being persistent and sorry it took me so long. No worries. It's been worth it. It's really great. And I can't wait to hear the hear the song. And it will magically appear after the conversation. So right. people don't <laughs> we should really do a whole documentary about the work that's going into this song, but um No, I don't know. Well, Jack, if I feel myself trying to write it, is that interesting to have? Mm. That's good for social media as well for putting things out there because like if you if you tag rick then everything you know he's gonna he's gonna reshare everything hopefully so we want some anticipation for the song right. you know but not just it appears magically so yeah definitely do that and maybe we could do like an instagram live when the song comes out and on your channels or something like that just to you know definitely tag photos of the lyric photos when you're writing the lyrics and oh yeah yeah okay drag the out whole, the whole the whole package yeah definitely definitely i just okay. won't include it in the podcast because it's too too much for people to listen to. oh i follow totally yeah. follow okay um yeah so the next thing people would hear after that interview would be and here's the finished song no i'll cut a little bit of this conversation in as well i see okay yeah just the part where we we say goodbye and good luck and things like that yeah Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Jack. No worries. I really mean it. You did a fantastic job. Of... You too. Yeah. Thank, thanks for <laughs> uh, stalling while I fumble around. And get um, all right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, buddy. Take care. Bye. Bye. We've been backstabbing trade, butchered and splayed on the altar the way it's always been done. It's American man, watch your funeral span The bulk of the calendar year And you can shake your head and say it's not right Spend all your nights in electronic fights But you know in the end there's no way to defend The way we do nothing at all
I just want the pain 